Where are you, Moses? Where are you now? Come down from that mountain, Moses. Lead your children home. Where are you, Moses? Where are you now? Come down from that mountain, Moses. Lead your children home. Your children all are hungry. No food for them to eat. Wandering through this desert, Lord. No shoes upon their feet. So tell me now, where are you, Moses? Where are you now? Come down from that mountain, Moses. Lead your children home. You said when we left Egypt, you and God had worked it out to lead us to a promised land. You said there was no doubt. So tell me now, where are you, Moses? Where are you now? Come down from that mountain, Moses. Lead your children home. The people carve their idols to worship and to keep. With greed and lust and hatred, Lord. They dig their graves so deep. So tell me now, where are you, Moses? Where are you now? Come down from that mountain, Moses. Lead your children
My name is Kevin Mercer, and my pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a member of your board of trustees, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the worship at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It is upon their land that we in Columbia reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Giddy, minister, as well as a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. I want to express my gratitude to all within our community who, who are striving to keep us connected and to provide meaningful worship services during this unusual and trying times. Whomever you are, wherever you're from, whomever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We particularly welcome any guests who are watching this service we hope that you will join us in the future when we return to worship at the Owen Brown Interfaith Center so that we will have a chance to meet and welcome you in person. I have one special announcement today. The auction team invites each of you to attend the next meeting on this Tuesday, July 27th at 7.30. They'll meet via Zoom as we prepare for the, the exciting return of an in-person auction. You can find the Zoom information through the link in the chat. 
Thank you, Kevin. Good morning, UUCC. My name is Melissa Afolter, and it, my pronouns are she and her. It's my pleasure to serve as the worship associate for today's service. I want to remind everyone that there is a downloadable order of service on our website if you'd like to follow along. Uh, for those who have any technical issues or are looking for links, please use the chat to communicate with one another and with Mary, I think, who is posting helpful information and we're responding to inquiries in the chat this morning. Um, please think of your screen name as your name tag and use the rename option if your name doesn't already show in your, in your name or your family's name as you wish it to be called. Later in the service, we'll be honoring joys and sorrows. If you have any uh, joy or sorrow to share, please send it to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. And if you're attending services for the first time or haven't had a chance yet, please complete our visitors form. The link is in the chat so that you can receive updates from us and so that we can get to know you better. And now I invite you to close your eyes, take a deep breath and hear the sounding of the bell as it brings us together in worship. Please join me in singing hymn 104, Go Down Moses. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The Lord told Moses what to do, let my people go. Lead the tribe of Israel through, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. For you the cloud shall clear the way, let my people fire by night, a shade by day. 
we recite our congregational covenant, I'm going to light the chalice with these words. Blessed is the fire that burns deep in the soul. It is the flame of the human spirit touched into being by the mystery of life. It is the fire of compassion. It is the fire of community. It is the fire of justice. The fire of faith. It is the fire of love burning deep in the human heart, the divine glow in every life. As we light this chalice, may it serve to give us clarity of purpose and illuminate our way as we set about doing the work of this congregation in commitment and cooperation and in love. Each week we recite our congregational covenant, a set of promises we make to one another and for each other to remind us what brings us together and how we choose to live in right relationship with one another. I invite you now to recite these promises with me. You can see the words on your screen. Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And now, we'll all be unmuted for a few moments. Please set your view to gallery so that you can see each other's beautiful faces and say hello. Mine and Liz. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Kelly Daniker. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and it is my joy to serve as the religious education assistant at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. So simple thing this morning, raise your hand if you love to hear a good story, <laughs> right? Everyone loves to hear a good story. We love to watch movies or see plays or read books or tell each other our stories. Stories entertain us, they inform us, and sometimes they challenge us. And so in that spirit, I'd like to show you a short three minute video this morning and it's just a simple story. And as you watch it, I invite you to think about what you think this story means. What does it mean to you? Roll video.
What is your interpretation of that story? What did you take from it? I invite you to very briefly, if you would like, to type into the chat what you saw in the story. And I'm going to ask you to stay brief and to limit your comments to our time for all ages space. The video you just saw was shown to 130 participants in a study conducted by Dr. Sui Lu Ten, and she was, in her words, astonished by the variety of interpretations inspired by just one story. And as hopefully some of you are typing into the chat, I'm going to read you just a few of the interpretations that Dr. Tan collected. A five-year-old with help from his mother said, as the man chases the ball, he reflects on his experiences throughout life. At the end, he gives the red ball to the child, suggesting the importance of passing things to the next generation. A 15-year-old said the red ball is magical and can grant wishes. The old man's wish is to be young again. When the ball rolls to the child, he wishes he had a father who would play with him. And the old man becomes his father, and they both find what they're looking for. And a 51-year-old man said, the old man on the bench was first annoyed by the ball, but it serves as a catalyst to draw him forward to something. In doing so, it induces the old man to remember and to have an internal memory of his youth. The ball was death, gently guiding him to his end, and the little kid an angel inviting him to come to heaven. This morning, we're going to hear some big stories that may challenge us. Ken Walsh is gonna walk us through some epic stories from the Bible, and he is going to give us insight into how activist and author Katie Elizabeth Stanton reinterpreted and challenged the meaning of those stories. This morning, we're gonna hear big stories with big characters that lead us to big questions. Why do these particular stories continue to have such an impact? What meaning can we perhaps take from these stories given to us by ancient cultures? And how can we keep challenging them? Happy Sunday, UCC. Thank you, Kelly. As Kelly said, today's service centers on Elizabeth Cady Stanton's commentary on Abraham, Moses, and David. These three shaped the development of Judaism out of which grew Christianity, both of which have had a huge influence on Western culture. Ken Walsh, who we are very lucky to have with us today, uh, will provide some commentary for your consideration along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton's women's point of view. His presentation is based on his recent book, Bible Stories for All Without the Dogma, a part of cultural literacy and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's Women's Bible. Ken taught the Old Testament and ancient history for 14 years at a tuition-free Jesuit inner city middle school for boys from low-income families. He has taught five Bible story classes at UUCC over the past three years. Ken Walsh wrote his book based on his years of teaching students who ranged from evangelicals to atheists, Muslims, and non-church-going Christians, he approaches this subject matter from an historical perspective so as not to offend anyone. Ken? Thank you, Melissa, and good morning. Some of you have read my book and attended my Bible story classes. However, today I want to add Elizabeth Cady Stanton's commentary to the story. I hope you'll enjoy her wit and insights as I have. 
Today's presentation is based on my recent book, Bible Stories for All Without the Dogma, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's Woman's Bible and the Good News Translation of the Bible. I'm honored that UUA Bookstore is carrying my book and my companion book, The Ethics Seminar Guide, this summer, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's Woman's Bible and the Good News Translation of the Bible are both available online for free. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's Woman's Bible grew out of her feeling that it was not divine will, but the human interpretation of the Bible that was used to dominate women. In 1894, the Church of England published the first revised edition of the Bible in 200 years. While she was in accord with many of the revisions, she was so disappointed in its continued humiliation of women that she pulled together her own revising committee of 26 women to address the portrayal of women. The Woman's Bible was published in 1895 and quickly became a bestseller. However, it was viewed by many suffragettes as an unwelcome distraction from their campaign. The suffragettes formally disassociated with the Woman's Bible and marginalized Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Susan B. Anthony became the prime leader focused solely on the right to vote. Biblical scholars avoided the issue of sexism in the Bible until the 1960s and 70s, when biblical scholarship by women reemerged. Here are a couple of her quotes that speak for themselves. From the inauguration of the movement for women's emancipation, the Bible has been used to hold her in the divinely ordained sphere. Women have compelled their legislators in every state in this union to so modify their statutes for women that the old common law is now almost a dead letter. Why not compel bishops and revising committees to modify their creeds and dogmas? And I love that last one. With the story of Abraham, we witnessed the Israelite formation of monotheism when polytheism reigned throughout much of the known world. The ancient people feared the polytheistic gods and sought to please them, lest horrible things happen, such as floods, drought, pestilence, and other calamities. They tried to please the gods with offerings made to them through their priests typically burnt sacrifices of their best animals, crops, and occasionally humans. However, Abraham had a direct personal relationship with his God, who was portrayed by some as a comparatively more loving God. So the Israelites were indeed very different. The story of Abraham is also a story of his faith being tested in unimaginable ways, and a story of a covenant, a solemn promise between God and God's people with mutual obligations. Today, we'll focus on a very narrow band of human history, around 1800 to 1000 before the Common Era. Our story begins when Abraham was 75 years old and childless. Children were highly valued in those days, days which measured wealth by the size of one's herd. The more children you had, the larger the herd you could maintain. Abraham had a vision, well, probably a dream, of God talking to him. Dreams held a prominent place in ancient culture. They believed that the gods used dreams to predict the future. In this dream, God said, leave your country and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I will give you many descendants and they will become a great nation. So Abraham left Haran in Northern Mesopotamia and started out for Canaan, 400 miles south. Well, several more years go by without Sarah bearing a child. In accordance with the customs of the time, Sarah told Abraham to try to have a child with her slave, Hagar. He agreed and took Hagar as his concubine. 
she became pregnant and had a son named Ishmael. Abraham had another vision of God making the covenant with him. God commanded him to obey. He promised Abraham that he will be the ancestor of many nations and that he will have many descendants and that some of them will be kings. Although the Israelites will continue to be tempted by polytheism for many generations, the movement to monotheism was clear with this quote. I will keep my promise to you and to your descendants in future generations as an everlasting covenant. I will be your God and the God of your descendants. I will give to you and to your descendants this land in which you are now foreigners. The whole land of Canaan will belong to your descendants forever, and I will be their God. The promised land of Canaan was from the Egyptian border to the Euphrates River. In addition, God mentioned that God will give Abraham a son by Sarah. Abraham respectfully bowed down, could not help but laugh at the thought of a now allegedly 100-year-old man having a son with an allegedly 90-year-old woman. So he questioned God, why not let Ishmael be my heir? However, this was never God's plan. God informed Abraham that he will have a son to be named Isaac and that God will keep his covenant through him. Isaac will be the father of 12 princes who will later be known as the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. God also promised to give Ishmael many children. Abraham in turn promised to obey God. As promised, Sarah does have a son whom she named Isaac. Years later, Sarah told Abraham to send Ishmael and his mother Haggard away. Sarah did not want Ishmael to inherit Abraham's wealth. And so Abraham gave Haggard food and a leather bag full of water and sent them away. Islamic custom views God as protecting the lineage of both sons with Ishmael as the ancestor of the Arab people and Isaac as the ancestor of the Jews. Years later, God tested Abraham's faithfulness by instructing him to take Isaac to a mountain in Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. At the top of the mountain, Abraham built an altar with stones, placed wood on the altar, tied up his son, and placed him on the altar. As Abraham picked up his knife, an angel called out, Abraham, don't hurt the boy or do anything to him. Now I know that you honor and obey God because you've not kept back your only son from God. Again, Abraham was promised as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. Testing one's faithfulness is a common concept in many religions. Let's review the significance of Abraham's story. He founded the Israelites' monotheism in a polytheistic world. He is a key influencer in three world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. His story is used to emphasize the importance of faithfulness to God with his willingness to follow God's request to sacrifice his son. And his God breaks with the polytheistic God's practice of human sacrifice. Lastly, God's covenant with Abraham promised to give his descendants the land from the Egyptian border to the Euphrates River, a promise still discussed today in Israel and its occupied territories. Personally, I've had a very difficult time with the story of Abraham. He's the patriarch of three world religions, yet he abandoned his firstborn son, Ishmael, and in an unbelievable moment, he prepared to kill his remaining son, Isaac, because he's told to do so in a dream. Elizabeth Cady Stanton offers these comments in her book, The Woman's Bible. Does anyone seriously believe that the great spirit of all good talked with these Jews and really said the extraordinary things they report? 
It was, however, a very cunning way for the patriarchs to enforce their own authority, to do whatever they desired and say, the Lord commanded them to do and say thus and so. Many pulpits, even in our day, enforce their lessons of subjection for woman with the same authority. Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And now, as we listen to some music, I invite you to be generous with your contributions and the sharing of your abundance. Please use the instructions for donating that will be placed in the chat box or text CHALICE to 72356 to contribute on your phone. You can also visit our website, uucolumbia.net slash giving. Next, we'll discuss Moses. With his story, we witnessed the exodus of the Israelites from slavery in a developing framework of their monotheistic faith. We'll focus on a narrow band of human history around 1250 BCE, or about 500 years after Abraham. While Abraham is the patriarch or founder of Judaism, Moses is the key figure in organizing a new faith among the Israelites. His story is told in the book of Exodus, which describes their departure from Egypt where they had been enslaved and which describes the covenant between God and the Israelites with the Ten Commandments and other laws. The Israelites will leave Egypt for the promised land in Canaan, which has often been described as the land of milk and honey, despite its semi-dry climate. One day, Moses appeared, one day God appeared to Moses as a burning bush. 
God told Moses that he would lead the enslaved Israelites in Egypt to freedom. But he warned Moses that the king would be stubborn. Now we begin the story of the 10 plagues. God told Moses to meet the king in the morning when he goes down to the Nile. Tell him, the God of the Israelites sent me to tell you to let his people go. Now, your majesty, our God says that you will find out who he is by what he's going to do. Look, I'm going to strike the surface of the water with this stick, and the water will be turned into blood. The fish will die, and the river will stink so much that the Egyptians will not be able to drink from it. And Moses and his brother Aaron confronted the king as instructed. The river turned to blood. The fish died. The river smelled so bad no one could drink from it. And just as predicted, the king refused to listen. He returned to his palace. And so we continue with the next eight plagues, all following a similar pattern. Moses asked the king to free the Israelites, or the Egyptians will suffer a plague. The king refuses. The Egyptians suffer a massive plague. And the king calls Moses back and offers to free the Israelites. But then has a change of heart. The cycle repeats with another plague. Next, frogs cover the houses of everyone. Then gnats cover the people and animals. Flies descend in mass on everyone. Next, all the Egyptian animals are killed, but not the Israeli animals. Open sores called boils appear on all the Egyptians. Hail rains down on the country, causing massive destruction. The country is covered with locusts, destroying the crops. Darkness covers Egypt for three days and nights. Still, the king is stubborn and refuses every request by Moses to free the Israelites. Then God said to Moses, I will send only one more punishment on the king of Egypt and his people. After that, he will let you leave. In fact, he will drive all of you out of here. Moses then told the king, God says at about midnight, God will go through Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. There will be a loud crying all over Egypt, such as there has never been before. However, the king was as stubborn as ever and refused to let the Israelites go. God had given Moses and Aaron instructions for the night of the deaths of the firstborn. Each Israelite family was to prepare a meal on the appointed evening. They were to kill a one-year-old male sheep. With a sprig of mint, they were to put some of the sheep's blood on their doorposts. The meat was to be roasted and eaten with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Such unleavened bread bakes faster. They would eat quickly and be prepared to leave with all they need early in the morning. This became known as the Passover celebration when God passed over the homes of the Israelites on the night of the deaths of the firstborn. The blood on the doorposts was a sign for the angel of death to pass over that house. At midnight, the angel of death killed all the firstborn Egyptian sons. A loud cry went up throughout the land. That same night, the king sent for Moses and Aaron and said, Get out, you and your Israelites. Leave my country and worship your God as you asked. Take your sheep, goats, and cattle and leave. And also, would you say a prayer for a blessing for me? So the Israelites left Egypt where they had lived for about 430 years. Let's take a look at this story. You might wonder, what is the point of the story of the 10 plagues? Perhaps it's another example of testing one's faithfulness. Who would repeatedly risk his life pestering an all-powerful king as Moses did? Next, there is the nature-related explanation for nine of the plagues. The first nine plagues describe natural events that have occurred in Northeastern Africa. For example, heavy tropical rainfalls, 
have washed red soil downstream and can create an illusion of a bloody Nile. A resulting higher than normal fish kill could cause the frogs to seek land. A flood could cause an explosion in gnats, flies, and insects, which could result in pestilence among the animals and infections. In addition, anthrax spawned by the dead fish could kill the frogs and could spread among the humans, causing boils and related deaths. Furthermore, all this destruction could be picked up by could be picked up as dust by strong winds from the Sahara Desert and leave the days in darkness. The story of the 10 plagues may have been intended to demonstrate the power of the God of Israel over specific gods of Egypt represented in the plagues. For example, Kanun was the fertility god associated with water, that is the Nile. Imhotep was the god of medicine, overpowered by the plague of boils. Seth was the god of the crops, overpowered by the plague of locusts. Osiris was the god of life, overpowered by the death of the firstborn. When the Israelites left Egypt, God did not guide them along the shortest route to Canaan, the coastal highway, where there were several Egyptian forts and across the border, the mighty Philistines. Instead, God sent them along a safer roundabout way toward the Red Sea and the Sinai Desert. Due to their periodic bouts of questioning God's plan, they were punished by wandering around in the desert for 40 years before reaching the promised land of Canaan. About 60 days after leaving Egypt, they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Three days later, God called Moses to the top of Mount Sinai and told him the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai is an imposing gray and pink granite mass that is often hidden by clouds. The local people thought of it as a home of their God. Here are the Ten Commandments. Notice the first three commandments relate to God, while the other seven, the majority, relate to people. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had a few comments on the third commandment to remember the Sabbath. Men of all classes make the Sabbath the day of rest. In the homes of the rich and poor alike, most women cook, clean, and take care of the children from morning till night. Men must have good dinners on Sundays above all other days, as they have plenty of time in which to eat. But the women must work as usual on the seventh. We see the same thing today. Women's work is never done. What irony to say to them, rest on the seventh day. Moses came down from Mount Sinai and shared the Ten Commandments with the Israelites. He reminded them that there were no gods represented by gold statues to be worshipped in place of the one God. It was a common practice among the polytheistic people they had lived with in Egypt to worship such idols. And we suspect that the early Israelites may have practiced rituals from both religious faiths, polytheistic and monotheistic. Days later, God, gave, God called Moses back up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive two stone tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments. Moses stayed there for 40 days and nights. You may have noticed that the number 40 is used in a number of Bible stories. Many biblical scholars view the number 40 as representing a period of testing or purification. The people became restless with Moses gone so long. They told Aaron that they did not know what had happened to Moses. So they asked Aaron to make them a God statue to lead them. He collected their gold earrings, melted them, and poured the gold into a mold and made a gold bull calf statue. Such statues were commonly worshiped by their neighbors as a symbol of the powerful God El, who represented strength. 
when Moses came down the mountain and saw the people worshiping the bull god, he threw the stone tablets down. He took Aaron and the people to task for their lack of faithfulness. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had this to say. To make a gold bull god statue, Aaron took the jewelry of the women, young and old, men never understanding how precious it is to them, and the great self-sacrifice required to part with it. But as the men generally give it to them during courtship and as wedding presents, they feel that they have a vested right therein for emergencies. And it was just so in the American Revolution. In 1776, the first delicacy the men threw overboard in the Boston Harbor was the tea, woman's favorite beverage. The tobacco and whiskey, though heavily taxed, they clung to with the tenacity of the devilfish. Elizabeth Cady Stanton provides her own view of the Moses story as follows. In closing the book of Exodus, the reader must wonder that the faith and patience of the, of the people in that long sorrowful march through the wilderness held out as long as they did, whether as a mere work of the imagination or the real experience of an afflicted people, our finest sentiments of pity and sympathy find relief only in doubts of its truth. In closing, let's look at the significance of the Moses story. We have a striking example of faithfulness to God in approaching the Egyptian king 10 times to request the release of the enslaved Israelites. Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery. Moses and the Israelites make a covenant with God. In exchange for God's protection, the Israelites pledge obedience to the 10 commandments and God's 600 plus laws. Lastly, Moses is the first leader of the Israelites as a unified free people. And now please join me in singing hymn 105 from age to age. Testament character that we'll discuss is David, and the story of one of Israel's most admired rulers, along with his flaws, will focus on a very narrow band of human history around 1000 BCE. Elizabeth Cady Stanton offers the following comment on the David story. His honor shines brighter in his songs than in his ordinary everyday life. We'll talk about David, who was the second king of Israel in a minute. 
Unfortunately, the promised land was occupied by others, and there were numerous battles over the territory in the semi-dry land. In two battles, the first king, Saul, did not follow God's instructions as conveyed to him through the prophet Samuel. While God did not remove Saul as the king, God did designate a successor, bypassing Saul's son, who was considered to be next in line. God sent his prophet Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king after the death of Saul. Upon arriving, Samuel saw a succession of Jesse's sons and thought, each one must be the one. But God said to him, pay no attention to how tall and handsome he is. I have rejected him because I do not judge as people judge. They look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. When I read this passage, I often think of the passage in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. They look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. This is such a moving passage, often overlooked, but clearly summing up the essence of life and picked up by Martin Luther King and his memorable paraphrasing. Samuel anointed the youngest son of Jesse, that is David. The spirit of God was now with David. However, the designation of the next king was not announced to Saul or to the people of Israel at this time. When the spirit of God left Saul, he fell into a depression. His staff asked if they could find someone to play the harp for him and pick up the spirits. Saul agreed, and they sent an attendant to fetch Jesse's son, David, who was known as a good musician. Saul liked David. Whenever Saul was down, David would play his harp and cheer him up. God let Saul finish his reign, but Saul knew he had lost God's confidence. It showed in his bouts of depression and in his upcoming jealousy of David's accomplishments and popularity. However, Saul's accomplishments were critical in their own right. He established a standing army, began the transition from 12 tribes to a new kingdom, and defended Israel from the attacking Philistines. His success in organizing the Israelites and defending Israel paved the way for David to build on that progress and expand the kingdom. Let's get back to the days of young David under Saul. The Philistines were again gathering to attack. They were lined up on one hill and the Israelites on another with the valley between them. A tall, huge man named Goliath came out of the battle line wearing bronze armor and a bronze helmet and carrying a javelin and a shield. Every morning for 40 days, Goliath challenged the Israelites to what is known in the ancient world as single combat. To avoid widespread bloodshed, a combatant would challenge the other side to put up a single combatant to fight a duel, typically until the death of one of them. The fight would occur on the open ground between the two opposing armies. Saul and his men were terrified of the Philistines and Goliath. This was understandable considering Goliath's size and his bronze armor, which the Israelites did not have. One day, young David was bringing food to his brothers. He arrived as the soldiers were lining up, and Goliath was challenging them to single combat. Some of the Israelites were running away in terror. Others were trembling. Although David's brothers tried to send him home, David approached Saul. If no one will fight this Philistine, David said he would. Saul told him he was just a boy, and Goliath had been a soldier all his life. But David persisted. So Saul agreed, gave David his armor, helmet, and sword. However, David was not used to wearing such armor or using such weapons. 
He took them off, picked up his shepherd's stick, five smooth stones, his sling, and went to meet Goliath. As Goliath approached and saw David was just a boy, he cursed David and threatened to give his body to the birds to eat. But David walked toward him, reached into his bag, put a stone in his sling, and swung it toward Goliath. It hit Goliath just under his helmet, on his unprotected forehead, and broke his skull. The mighty Goliath fell to the ground, dead. In panic, the Philistines ran away, and the, Egyptian, the Israelites chased them, wounding and killing many. As Saul and David returned from the battle, the women in every town came out to greet them. They sang praises to both. However, Saul became jealous of David's popularity. He thought they might make David the king. The next day, Saul raved about as a madman. As David was playing his harp to cheer him up, Saul picked up the spear and threw it at David. Somehow, David managed to dodge it. Saul was jealous because he realized the spirit of God was with David and not him. That night, Saul sent men to David's house to kill him. However, David's wife learned of the plan and warned him to escape before the men arrived. David fled to the hill country and lived in the wild, occasionally getting supplies from friendly villages. Saul and his sons fought another battle against the Philistines. Many Israelites were killed, including Saul and his sons. The Israelites mourned their deaths. As the next king of Israel, David had to fight separatists within Israel and unite the nation. While he was completely devoted to God and able to win the loyalty of the Israelites, he also committed terrible selfish sins. Yet his achievements so impressed the Israelites that during their time in exile, centuries later, they yearned for a king like David, a son of David, a descendant who would be like him. During David's reign, Israel continued its transition from small villages and 12 tribes dependent on farming and herding to an expanding nation with growing cities and increasing economic, political, and military power. David realized that God had not only made him king, but made his kingdom prosperous. Yet he became upset that he was living in a cedar house while the covenant box of God with the Ten Commandments was housed in a tent. He decided to build a temple for it. However, the prophet Nathan visited him with a message from God. David was not to build a temple for God. His son will build it. God had traveled with the Israelites in a tent all these years. God had been with them all this time and made David their ruler. And God said through Nathan, you will always have descendants and I will make your kingdom last forever. Your dynasty will never end. This is known as the Davidic covenant, a covenant promising that David's descendants will live on forever. Many believe that the Davidic covenant lives on not only through Judaism, but also through Jesus, a descendant of David and the Christian church founded on his teachings. On a practical level, there were numerous matters requiring more attention than building a temple at this time. David was busy trying to consolidate the 12 tribes into an effective unified nation. He needed to build the government, organize the army, construct forts, and settle the issues of the 12 tribes in the conquered lands. There was a lot of first time work to do without precedent to guide him. David continued to be successful in military victories, including the defeats of the Philistines, Moabites, the Syrians, and the Ammonites. One afternoon while walking in his palace's rooftop garden, he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath in her house across the way. He learned that she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, 
an officer in his army who was then attacking the Ammonites. David had Bathsheba brought to him. They made love. She became pregnant while her husband was still on the front. To cover up his adultery, David wrote a letter to Uriah's commander, ordering him to put Uriah on the front line in the center where the fighting would be the heaviest, where Uriah would most likely be killed. And he was. When Bathsheba learned of her husband's death, she mourned. After a period of mourning, David had her brought to the palace. He married her, and they had a son. However, God was not pleased with David. God sent his prophet Nathan to see David. Nathan told him a parable, a short story with a moral lesson, about a rich man and a poor man. While the rich man had many cattle and sheep, the poor man had only one lamb, which had grown up with his family. The lamb was like a member of the family. One day, a visitor came to the rich man's house. The rich man needed to provide hospitality, as was the custom, but did not want to kill one of his own animals to prepare a meal for the visitor. Instead, he took the poor man's only lamb. Well, David was angry about the rich man and said he should die and pay four times as much as he took. Nathan, in turn, told David that he was that man when he took Uriah's wife. David immediately repented and said he had sinned against God. Nathan informed him that God forgave him and that he would not die. However, because of his misdeed, his child would die. And so a week after his birth, David's son died. Nathan had predicted that someone in each subsequent generation would die a violent death. David and Bathsheba mourned and comforted each other. Eventually, they had another son, Solomon. The man who had been a fugitive from King Saul, the man who had wandered from cave to cave, hiding from King Saul and his army, was now the king of Israel. Thousands of people worked in his fields and shops. They built his palace, forts, and storerooms for his crops. David had reached his ultimate glory. Yet Elizabeth Cady Stanton had these words about David, who also had seven wives, numerous concubines, and 19 children. This book contains little in regard to women. Concerning his affair with Bathsheba, she wrote, David's social ethics were not quite up to the standard, even in his own times. And she described the stage killing of Uriah as the cruelest deed of David's life, a man ruled entirely by his passions. In closing, let's look at the significant parts of David's story. We have the beginnings of a modern state being formed under David a strong single ruler, a large, well-organized standing army, a national focus to their religion, the organization of a government with the collection of taxes and the appointment of local officials subject to David. Under David, religion moved from a tribal focus to a national one with the installation of the Ark of the Covenant box in Jerusalem. Previously, it traveled among the 12 tribes. He's thought to have written 73 of the 150 Psalms in the Book of Psalms, a hymn book and prayer book of the Israelites. He also unified the country with the selection of Jerusalem as its capital. The poor country became wealthy with David's conquests and resulting additions to the national treasury. David was a brilliant military and political leader and a faithful follower of God's commands. However, he did commit serious sins and while he readily acknowledged them and accepted his punishment. Overall, David was without an equal in Israel's history. Thank you, Ken. We'll now move on to the sharing of joys and sorrows. 
If you have a bowl of water and stones at home to participate, please feel free to get them now. This practice is a custom in our congregation where one can publicly and openly share a significant meaningful event that has deeply touched their life. As I read the joys and sorrows, we will listen deeply and lovingly. We are made mindful of the sacredness of the ritual when we cast a stone in the bowl of communal water. The ripples it forms symbolize how our lives touch one another. And finally, one last stone for everything that you are holding in your hearts but have not put to words. Breathe in, breathe out. This breath we share with all that breathes. Feel the love of the universe flowing through this community into you and out to the universe again. Let the love of all of the universe, your love, flow outward to its height, its depth, its broad extent. You are more than you know and more beloved than you know. Take up what power is yours to create a safe haven, to make of earth a heaven. Give hope to those you encounter that they may know safety from inner and outer harm. Be happy and at peace healthy and strong, caring and joyful. Be the blessing you already are. That is enough. Blessed be. Amen. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's overview of the Bible leads us with a few thoughts for our consideration as we close this morning. There are some general principles in the holy books of all religions that teach love, charity, liberty, justice, and equality for all the human family. 
There are many grand and beautiful passages. The golden rule has been echoed and re-echoed around the world. There are lofty examples of good and true men and women, all worthy of our acceptance and imitation, whose luster cannot be dimmed by the false sentiments and vicious characters bound up in the same volume.
When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, Seize him by the tail, old Moses did, and it turned to a rod again. God promised to leave his children out of bondage. He said he'd free them from Pharaoh's evil hand. He said he'd guide and protect them on their journey and lead them to the promised land. Well, the Lord said, Moses, I've got power and I'll be with you every hour. Said, go tell Pharaoh to set my children free. Well, Moses did, but the Lord helped out. He sent a plague to the land about, so old Pharaoh told him to go and let him be. Well, they started out with a cloud by day and a fire by night to lead the way, but old Pharaoh suddenly decided to change his mind. So he gathered together his soldier band, got all them chariots throughout the land, said, I'll let them Israelites go some other time. God promised to leave his children out of bondage. He said he'd free them from Pharaoh's evil hand. He said he'd guide and protect them on their journey and lead them to the promised land. Well, they came to the banks of the old Red Sea, turned to Moses and started to plea, and Moses fell on his knees and there in the sand. The Lord said, Moses, trust in God, God. All you got to do is just raise that rod and over these mighty waters stretch your hand. 
Well, Moses followed the Lord's command. The waters parted, and there in the sand they saw a path that led to the other shore. Well, the ground was dry, and they passed on through, and old Pharaoh's army thought they would too, but the waters fell, and ain't never been seen no more. God promised to lead his children out of bondage. He said free them from Pharaoh's evil hand. He said he'd guide and protect them on their journey and lead them to the promised land. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing Stand before 